Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Guardian. Boris Johnson defies Tory rebels as G7 leaders head to sunny Cornwall for their first face-to-face get-together since 2019. I'm Heather Stewart political editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Mr Speaker, in the wake of the British chairmanship of the G7, the government's failure to address this issue will indisputably mean that hundreds of thousands of avoidable deaths will result. It is already attracting criticism from all round the other members of the G7. On Monday, the former International Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell, backed by over 40 Conservative MPs, looked set to defeat the government in a vote on foreign aid cuts. A move timed to cause maximum embarrassment to the Prime Minister, ahead of this week's G7 summit. In the event, the Speaker Lindsay Hoyle didn't allow a vote on their amendment, but he did call an emergency debate, allowing Mitchell and other senior Tory figures to have their say. And Hoyle urged the government to call a future vote on the ditching of the 0.7% aid target, something Boris Johnson has refused to do. As the British government hosts one of the most important meetings in multilateralism, are they feeling the heat? On Friday, leaders of the US, Japan, Germany, France, the UK, Italy, Canada and the EU are heading to Cornwall for the annual G7 summit, the first in-person meeting since before the pandemic and also the first international event for Boris Johnson to host. Will he be able to convince the international community that post-Brexit Britain still holds sway in the world? Jessica Elgott asks Patrick Winter and Sir Ivan Rogers. Plus, if referendums on the question of Northern Ireland's constitutional status were to be held, what would they actually look like? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, let's look at the latest in a standoff between the government and Tory rebels and much more. I'm joined by Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee. Polly, it's lovely to have you. First of all, let's look at this issue of cuts to foreign aid. We've had some very senior Conservatives lining up against Boris Johnson on this issue this week, haven't we? It's been very interesting to see the revival of a split in the Tory party. Boris Johnson went out of his way to throw out all of the old softer Tories. Uh, he, you know, he ejected 21 of them at one point. And suddenly there they all are again. Andrew Mitchell, Damien Green, a whole host of them who look not just on this subject, but possibly on future subjects, like a real threat 
to the government being able to do whatever it wants, or maybe on issues such as poverty and benefits, all kinds of other things may now arise, which is encouraging, really, I think, because a party with an 80 majority that feels it can ride roughshod over everybody is always a democratic threat. Mm, and Theresa May popped up as well, didn't she? It's, it's interesting to see some of these figures that, as you say, he sort of swept to the back benches, making themselves known again. He did manage to avoid a vote, didn't he? That The Speaker didn't select this amendment that the, the MPs had tried to use to make their point. But do you think they made their point anyways? It's still embarrassing ahead of the G7, isn't it? They certainly made their point, And the Speaker was very stern, saying this really ought to come to a vote. It was voted on before. Parliament passed a law saying, that uh, we should reach the 0.7% foreign aid target and to simply wipe it away without any parliamentary vote is a disgrace and the Speaker said so. But of course Boris Johnson is not um, easily shameable and he just said no, it was embarrassing, won't do it. But I think it'll come back. They'll find a better bill to attach it to. This was a, a slightly odd attempt to attach this to something completely different. Yeah, I bet, as you say, they've got often once these sort of like-minded groups of MPs are formed, they, they can start to make trouble on all kinds of other issues, can't they? Um, and he's also, Boris Johnson, facing pressure on this issue globally too, isn't he? And the US are interested in our aid budget. And, you know, he's going to host world leaders this week and wants to look like he's a sort of internationalist and, a you know, outward looking post-Brexit and all that. It doesn't It doesn't seem to fit quite with that narrative, does it? No, the rest of the world and our allies are looking at us. A group of Democrats in Congress have have asked Joe Biden to press Boris Johnson to restore this cut. There was a a compromise on offer. The rebels said, if you promise to bring it back in 2022, then we'll step back. But he's not even willing to do that, which shows that this so-called temporary cut looks pretty set to be permanent. Just at the time that other countries are all raising their contributions, Germany just about hitting the target, the 0.7 target, France well on its way. We really do look like pariahs in the middle of a pandemic. To be cutting things like 700,000 girls' education will go overnight because we pay for that. Clean water projects will go. Support for the Yemen, where we've actually been supplying weapons to the Saudi Arabians who've been bombing Yemen. Contraceptive clinics disappearing across Africa. Well, we know that, you know, the population problem in Africa is quite serious. Freedom for women to choose, very serious. It looks pretty despicable on the world stage. If we want to be big global players post-Brexit, global Britain, this was no good way to begin. Mm, And Polly, we'll hear more about the G7 summit later. There there is an achievement ahead of that summit, isn't there, which is this global tax deal. I wonder what you make of that. Is it the sort of return of multilateralism, do you think, now that America is sort of back in the room under Joe Biden? Obviously, there were some people who thought the deal could have been a lot more ambitious, but but we haven't seen anything like this for quite a while, have we? No, it's a very good sign that at least on principle, it looks as if they're going to agree. Joe Biden wanted it to be a 21% minimum tax on on all the big corporations Britain looks as if it's been dragging its heels right up to the last moment. Financial Times today again has a story suggesting that uh, Rishi Sunak, our Chancellor, is trying to exempt some city firms that he suddenly worries will be caught up in it. Britain is always the laggard in these kinds of initiatives. So maybe signing up at least to the principle is the beginning of something better. 
Now let's move on to a, another decision Boris Johnson has to face this week, Polly. Um, countries nervously awaiting to hear whether the government will proceed with step four of the roadmap, isn't it, on the 21st of June, lifting all restrictions in England. We've got this sort of rising cases of the Delta variant, the one that originated in India, particularly in the northwest. Hospitalizations now are starting to creep up. It feels like quite a familiar balance, doesn't it? You've got Steve Baker and his sort of lockdown sceptics on one side saying we've got to go ahead with this. We've got to have Freedom Day on the 21st of June. And and there's Boris Johnson, you know, wondering whether to obey them. He's instinctively on their side, probably, or, or whether we should be more cautious and perhaps push it back a bit. Well, of course, it's something that shouldn't come across politically at all, shouldn't cut across political lines. But it does. It, the further right people are, the more they're for liberation, as they call it. But in the end, listening to the scientists, listening to the sage scientists and to others is what matters most. But of course, if you read The Telegraph today, you'll find other scientists willing to say the opposite. Though actually, when you look at them, they're sort of industrial uh, experts rather than epidemiologists. But you can always find your expert to support your own point of view. What we know about Boris Johnson is that the precautionary principle is not how he operates. It does seem that, according to public opinion, they would rather wait a few more weeks. Public opinion is quite wise and sensible and wants to go cautiously rather than recklessly. So we shall see which side wins. And it's very difficult for ordinary laypersons like us to know who's right in this because plainly, Vaccination has made an enormous difference to the numbers of people going to hospital and the numbers of people who are dying. Nevertheless, it is rising. And we've been here before, a full storm, ignoring you know pretty steep rises in cases. Um, we should mention Matt Hancock's hearing at the Select Committee tomorrow, this joint committee, Jeremy Hunt and Greg Clark sharing it, that's doing an inquiry into COVID. So they heard Dominic Cummings, who was absolutely sort of visceral about Matt Hancock's performance. Now we get to hear what Hancock himself has to say about some of these allegations, for example, about PPE procurement, about decisions on care homes and so on. How do you think Hancock will perform? I think he'll perform quite smoothly, but he's up against very tough operators. I mean, Jeremy Hunt will go for the jugular, I think. After all, Jeremy Hunt knows the health service very well indeed, having been health secretary for a long time. Jeremy Hunt has also plainly got his hat in the ring for the day when, when Boris Johnson falls. He is very much the king over the water at the moment. So I think he'll give Hancock a hard time. You know, Hancock's been accused of outright lying, of pretending to the cabinet that he had thrown a, a protective ring around care homes when he hadn't, for pretending that he had more capability to do testing than he had, uh, exaggerating. Whether that'll turn out to be lethal, I don't know. It depends whether Dominic Cummings has actually come up with some documents, and it looks as if he may not have done. It's one thing to blurt out a lot of abuse. It's quite another to produce a paper trail and I think that would make the crucial difference. If there is paper to say so, then Hancock's are gone up, but I suspect there may not be. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Paper or, or even WhatsApps or text messages. Um, Dominic Cummings was sort of reading out Hancock's text messages at the last hearing, which must have sort of made everybody in government quail, I should think, wondering whether they would be next. But you're right, if there isn't any substantiating evidence, you sort of wonder where that where that goes, really. And, and finally, Polly, the, the Conservatives have been doing their best to reignite the culture wars yet again this week. So we've had Oliver Dowden, the Culture Secretary, wading into this row about an England cricketer who'd sort of sent some, been criticised for sending some sexist and racist tweets. And we've had Gavin Williamson, who you thought might have thought had better things to do, putting in his, his 
Tories two penneth about an Oxford college taking down a portrait of the Queen. What is it the Tories are playing at here? This is a well-known distraction technique that when some things are not going too well, it's always good to produce a, a talking point. It's a talking point that's not really about politics at all. It's about identity. It's about which side are you on, pro-monarchy, anti-monarchy. It's trying to tar the other side, the opposition, with all sorts of strange things, you know, because a group of extreme students at Oxford do something like diss the Queen, it implies somehow that Labour's implicated. So it's quite clever politics, but it's dirty politics. Uh, You know, there is no culture war except that being created by government ministers on purpose. And it's very destructive, I think. I think it's a great divider of the country along artificial lines. It's totally spurious. Uh, Polly Toynbee, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. If you want to hear more about Matt Hancock's appearance before that select committee on Thursday, listen to today's episode of Today in Focus, where I speak with Rachel Humphreys about what it could mean for the future of him and the country. After the break, we head to Cornwall. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Heather Stewart. Now on Friday, Boris Johnson will host the G7 Group of Wealthy Nations in Carbis Bay in Cornwall. The summit will be their first in-person gathering since the pandemic began. And it also marks Joe Biden's first trip to Europe as US president and the first international event Britain hosts since the end of the transition period after leaving the EU. So it will give us a good idea of what kind of role Boris Johnson sees for Britain on the international stage in the post-Brexit era. To preview the summit and what it can achieve, and to look at Boris Johnson's global Britain ambitions, Jessica Elgott spoke with Patrick Winter, The Guardian's diplomatic editor, and Sir Ivan Rogers, former UK ambassador to the EU and a Sherpa at multiple summits. Thank you both ever so much for joining us. I guess we'll start with you, Sir Ivan. You've worked, you've prepared for G7s, G20s. Maybe you could start by reminding us, what is the purpose of the G7? Why, why do these wealthy countries like to to meet up every year and, and talk through the, the biggest issues in the world. And uh, and I suppose also maybe you could touch on, is it out of date? There are there are quite a few countries who are who are obvious in their omissions in this meeting today. Well, I mean that's a great and but very difficult question as to why <laughs> we do it. It started I think in the mid 1970s at the height of the Cold War. And at that stage of course the G7 represented you know the vast bulk of the developed world serious economies. And outside the developed world, there weren't many kind of serious economies. And those were the democracies as well of the Western world. 
So it's very difficult to say now that the purpose of the G7, you know, 45 years on is at all the same. And I don't think it can or should be. And the G20, as you say, came into existence about 15 years ago, precisely because the G7 doesn't really have global representativeness or legitimacy anymore. So what do you do with the G7? I mean, why do people and like it or the leaders like it? And I think they often do because it's smaller, more intimate, a more genuine kind of conversation or set of conversations than you get either at the G20 or at the European Council. We're obviously no longer at the European Council having left, but those are large roomfuls. G7 gives you an opportunity to meet fellow leaders in a relatively relaxed, very closed environment, just a table of people, you know, usually with their Sherpas behind them at the table, but nobody else in the room. I must say, I enjoyed doing various G7 summits because they're different in quality. Uh, There's a different conversation. People are not reading out speaking notes to each other. They are genuinely engaged in often kind of animated, sometimes heated, but often amicable conversation. It feels very different from the other kinds of things that global leaders do. And they get to have more time with each other, both inside the room and then in bilaterals or sort of plurilaterals outside the room. Patrick, set the scene for us a bit about this G7. It's Boris Johnson's first really big turn on the world stage. It's Joe Biden's first visit abroad as president. It's the first of these summits in the post-Trump era. What will what will he be looking to get out of this, first of all, Boris Johnson? Well, I've been slightly struck by the fact that there hasn't been a, a very big theme coming from number 10 in comparison with the summits that were conducted in 2005 at Glen Eagles, where Blair had a big Africa commission beforehand and then a big issue around alleviating debt to Africa. And you could see that was the theme of the, the summit all the way through. And then I think as it's been just said, the, the 2013 UK summit in Northern Ireland had a big tax transparency theme to it. By contrast, what we're about to see in Cornwall, there seems to be a sort of plethora of different issues sort of weighing down on the summit and it's hard to see at this distance which one is going to come out on top when you speak to the campaigners the issue that they're very wound up about is the the distribution of vaccines to poorer countries and the 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 clear contrast between the very rich countries which be around the table in Cornwall that have um, bought and hoarded a huge amount of vaccines whilst in Africa there is a very very small percentage of two percent or so and the issue really will be whether uh, Johnson can galvanise a kind of credible plan with targets about how there's going to be a bigger take-up all around the world. Because I think, as we've seen from what's happened in India, what happens around the world, it will come back to haunt us in terms of this pandemic. There's one other issue which I think uh, Johnson's been preparing for, which is in its telling about who he's also invited to this summit, which is Australia, South Korea and India. And he really wants to push this issue of the um, Indo-Pacific and China. I think that would have been the focus of the summit, but for the pandemic. I mean, what do you see that the themes of the summit being is broadly agree with Patrick? And what will other world leaders do you think want to get out of, of the meeting? Other than also, I, I suppose, broadly get a sense of what role Britain sees itself as playing in the world now post-Brexit, whether we are this kind of all-embracing global Britain or whether you know we're, we're going to adopt a sort of more more cautious, isolationist approach to the world? Well, on that, yeah, of course, it's the first time they'll have seen Johnson chairing anything and in action. Look, they can't avoid the vaccines issue. And as Patrick has said, 
whatever the state of play in the US, in the EU, in Japan and in the UK, the big issue is the difficulties in the least developed countries. You know, I, I think the other issue, I mean, they've already done tax at, at the G7 finance ministers. I wouldn't overstate the G7 breakthrough. It's clearly important that G7 finance ministers got where they got last weekend. And it's an immensely important issue, I think, in this post-pandemic world and post-financial crisis world. Again, though, let's be clear, the G7 can't commit the rest of the world And indeed, there may be some reaction from the rest of the world and from players not at the table to the idea that the contours of the the political contours of the deal are being dictated to them by G7 players. So it's a very, I mean, the real issue will be what happens at the G20 and the follow up in the OECD. The other thing I think they focused on, which, again, I think is welcome and a good use of the G7 is compulsory disclosures on climate change for companies. I think it obviously is part of what both Johnson and Sunak are looking to do in the run up to the COP26 talks. Again, the G7 can't commit the rest of the world. It's solely about what the G7 is committing to. It may catalyze things that can happen elsewhere and others pick up on. But it's certainly quite a good thing for, uh, for the G7 to focus on. And I think there'll be some substance in what they deliver on climate change compulsory disclosures. Just to go back for a little, just briefly onto vaccines and to aid. Patrick, obviously, we've seen a rebellion or an attempted rebellion by Conservative MPs to force the issue this week, which was clearly the timing was important to them. I mean, I don't want to overestimate how much this this encroaches into the vision of the world leaders arriving here, but it is it is an embarrassing shadow to cast on it, isn't it? That we're a bit of an outlier amongst G7 nations in that in our approach to the aid budget this year. Yes, I mean, if you look at, I think, every other G7 nation, even Japan, which doesn't have a very large aid budget, they're all increasing it um, this year. And I I think the Americans in particular are are pushing very hard on this issue. And it it is, I think, a sort of category error made last year without thinking ahead to have decided to cut the aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5. As everyone said, the aid budget would have contracted anyway since the economy was going to contract. So the it would have taken some of the strain that's being placed upon the on the budget deficit. So there's no need to go further. And it was a further category error by the government who've left a bill lying around to be debated on a Monday, which um, the, the rebels were able to put this amendment onto. OK, they didn't succeed in having it fully debated, but it allowed them to push the issue back up the agenda where it was beginning to start to slide because there's only a certain number of times you could go on about future aid cuts and what the impact they would have. So I I think the government managers really ought to think about why they managed to let this issue go back up the agenda as quickly as they did. And there will be announcements at the weekend about girls' education and extra money from the UK. But everyone's going to scrutinise those figures doubly hard because of what we know is going on elsewhere. And it's all very well saying you're going to educate more girls. But if they, if in fact, uh, you know, the, the water supply is also running out, it's not going to really help that much. I think it was just a really foolish mistake by the government. It, they've also been evasive about allowing there to be a vote. So there's been an issue of parliamentary accountability, which has angered a lot of Conservative MPs who might not have been angered otherwise. David, how do you think um, world leaders view the aid debate in the UK? How how essential is it that they would feel that they wanted to put pressure on us over that issue? 
Well, I think leaders will tend not to want to put pressure on other people's budgetary decisions. And, you know, they also, some of them can't you know, easily throw stones from within glass houses. I mean, the Americans may indeed be appalled by the timing of what we've done, but they are certainly not at 0.5% of GDP themselves, even if 0.5 is 30% down on 07 so lecturing the British about, you know, how they've uh, departed the scene in key places in sub-Saharan Africa and cut aid programmes and projects pretty savagely, which is obviously what's going on, is quite difficult when your own percentage is nearer 0.2 than 0.5. And I don't think leaders tend to sort of attack each other on kind of domestic spending things. They may raise an eyebrow and they may have their views about what the UK has done and why it's done it. Uh, Patrick has alluded to the ineptitude of it, but it was a deliberate political decision, clearly both from Number 10 and the Treasury, and to send a signal to the Tory backbenches and to the Tory base, which is not very keen on aid spending and always wanted to uh, launch a bit of a counterattack against what they thought had become an orthodoxy under New Labour on the point seven. So... No, I don't. I don't think leaders will tackle Johnson on that specifically. As I say, uh, they'll be interested in what he has to say about global Britain. But I don't think you know. By definition, we're obsessing much more about this than anybody else. They will listen to his assurances that he's a free trader and a globalizer and global Britain and outreach and it's not parochial and it's not chauvinist. I have to say, you know, I've heard from not just Europeans, but from very senior Americans saying, "Well, I know the Brits say all that, but they've just taken the biggest." trade protectionist step that any developed country has taken in the last 75 years. Now, I know government members, including Johnson, don't agree with that way of describing the the Brexit decision, but we've just put up trade barriers with easily our largest export market. And that's the view as well in the US administration, in the White House and in State Department. Nevertheless, they will welcome the idea of a British Prime Minister engaged and energetic on international issues, including climate change and tax, what's not to welcome? There's a lot of potential common ground between what Johnson would want to do on the levelling up agenda as well and what Biden does. So they will be looking for areas in which they can really do business with this government, watching quite closely as to whether it's markedly different from previous governments. But I don't think they're obsessing about you know, the role of Britain in the world. I think we're obsessing about that. Patrick, I want to come on and discuss a bit more about what we might might see, you know, particularly in sidelines talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. But first of all, Patrick, how do you think Boris Johnson and Joe Biden will get on? We we heard that, you know, in a great in a great profile by Tom McTague in The Atlantic, that Johnson doesn't like the phrase special relationship. He thinks it sounds needy. I have to say I tend, tend to agree with him on that. But what, what do you make of, of that assessment by him? Well, look, they've been thrown together. I don't think they're sort of soul brothers or, you know, natural peas in a pod. They are very different people. I think he has a, a deep ethical base in him. And I, I'm not sure that our Prime Minister has the same same ethical base. He has a, a joie de vivre and a bonhomie, which uh, Biden will like. And I'm sure they will get on because the leaders of America and the UK need to get on. It would be wrong for them to let any kind of personal differences really... Uh, soil the relationship. There will be this issue about Northern Ireland, but can I mention one other thing, which I think is is really the agenda that the Americans are bringing more broadly to this summit, because it's not just this summit. He's then going to go on to uh, Europe to have a summit there, to the European Union, and he's to have the NATO summit, and then he will 
with hopefully wind in his sails, go on to have a meeting with Vladimir Putin. And the issue he really wants to raise is one about democracy in the defence of democracy versus autocracy. Uh, and he wants to be able to say to voters in Western democracies that we can deliver on your behalf and it is a better system than authoritarian systems. And this is going to require democratic countries to be more willing to ally together and not compete as much as they have in the past. And they have to defend and extol the virtues of the democratic vote, regardless of what may have happened in America itself. And that is really the biggest thing he wants to talk about. And I'm sure he'll get um, support for that from all around the table. The, there are dangers in it because democracy can throw up some strange results. And we've yet to see what the elections in Italy and France may produce. We may produce some pretty right-wing governments themselves. So it's a tricky issue to take on, but I think it's one he wants to do. Ivan, how do you how do you see that playing out? Um, obviously, Boris Johnson himself occasionally bristles at those kinds of suggestions, particularly over the conduct of the Brexit campaign. He only quite recently hosted Victor Orban in, in Downing Street. Do you think do you think there's things that might rub Johnson up the wrong way in those conversations? I don't think so necessarily. Uh, um Look, I think the choice of, you know, seeing Orban as I think the first leader other than the Irish Taoiseach from the European Union inside Downing Street, when it's really hard to argue at the moment that this is a, a genuine liberal democratic country inside the EU, uh, again, isn't the shrewdest political move that number 10 has made. And it certainly said, you know, set off alarm bells inside the European Union, but I suspect it has with the states as well. Nevertheless, I mean, the Johnson view of Brexit will, after all, be that it's a fundamentally uh, democratic and sovereignist step and strengthens democracies. And I'm sure he'll come out with all the usual stuff about, you know, there's no reason not to have a strong and enduring relationship with all our allies on an intergovernmental basis and, you know, build the strength of liberal democracies. So I think you could paper all that over. I think Northern Ireland... Look, I, one of the things I would say about G7s is some of the most interesting stuff is really done in the margins, outside the room, on business that isn't even on the agenda. You know, we discussed an EU-US trade deal, obviously, with a subset of leaders at Camp David in 2012, quite intensively. And it was a huge interest for Cameron and Merkel, as well as Obama. The Northern Ireland Protocol issue, which is becoming, you know, I mean, I've always been quite pessimistic about whether this would hold and indeed whether our own government was serious about it holding. You can see uh, the recriminations and the blame game starting for the potential collapse of the protocol. I hope it doesn't collapse and I hope there are pragmatic fixes. Is this something that Biden will have engaged with deeply? I mean, I think he'll know about it in terms and I'm sure White House and State Department people are all over it and there's huge congressional interest. I think the Europeans are pinning some hopes that there'll be some Biden pressure on Johnson to behave on the Good Friday Agreement and ensure that he sticks to the protocol. Again, I think you know, Johnson will give you know political assurances to Biden that he doesn't intend to undermine it and try and then reverse the burden and say it's the Europeans being intransigent, inflexible, legalistic. So I don't think you settle anything in the G7, but there might be some quite interesting discussions in the margins about where we are in Northern Ireland, because let's not, let's not kid ourselves. If the Northern Ireland Protocol disintegrates or looks as though the UK is backsliding in a way that the EU finds objectionable, you know, we're heading for another major Brexit crisis in the second half of this year. 
Final question to you both. What would you see as a successful summit? What's the mark of a, a good outcome, you know, at the end of this for for the UK, but but actually mainly for the world? What's the what's the best outcome for global health and prosperity? Clearly, the performance at global level and above all for the least developed countries in the world has been lamentable so far on vaccines. So anything which makes demonstrable progress on that and demonstrates that the G7 not only cares, but intends to drive initiatives on that, which address that problem seriously over the next six to 12 months would be good. The defence of liberal democracy and the determination to demonstrate that liberal democracy delivers for citizens better than authoritarian regimes is the most important single issue of our time. But then, as I say, there are these, you know, very important but uh, second order issues which are not really second order, you know, like the climate change disclosure as you build towards COP26. The perception of China amongst these leaders at this point, post-COVID and post-everything else over the last 10 years, is undoubtedly you know, significantly more gloomy about the state of the globalised world than, you know, where we were even after the great financial crisis. Patrick? Well, I would say no bust up on any issue. If they can avoid that, that would be an achievement because we as journalists will be there to try and find a division and dispute. Second thing would be to make sure that no political leader goes down with COVID during the uh, summit or uh, the half, half a delegation have to be sent home very urgently. The third, I think, is trying to get some kind of coherence about this issue of the balance between competition and uh, cooperation, because as just been said, you, you cannot solve the climate change issue without uh, China's cooperation. And then lastly, I think a, a credible package on trying to ensure that vaccines are sent around the world and that uh, the production capacity is sent around the world. And maybe, and I'm not sure it really has a huge impact, but uh, I expect there may be things said about um, intellectual property rights and vaccines. Many thanks to you both. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Now, the 1998 Good Friday Belfast Agreement states that a referendum legally must happen if it appears likely to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland that a majority for those voting would support Irish unification. That condition's not met at present. There's no evidence that a majority would vote for unification. But, and there are a lot of ifs and buts involved, that could change in the coming years. And if it happens, it will be necessary to think through ahead of time how these referendums should be run. Everyone remembers the chaos and confusion in the wake of the Brexit referendum. That's why the Constitution Unit at University College London started the Working Group on Unification Referendums on the Island of Ireland. The project doesn't take a view on what the outcome ought to be, but looks at the mechanics on how the complex process of a referendum, potentially quite a dangerous one, would take place. Last week, the Working Group published its report, an opportunity for Rory Carroll, the Guardian's Ireland correspondent, to ask the chair of the working group, Dr Alan Rennick, all about it. It's really necessary just to think through what would a referendum or a set of referendums on the, the question of Northern Ireland's constitutional future involve. They wouldn't be straightforward. This would be a complex process. It would be potentially quite a dangerous process. And therefore, someone needed to think through just what would uh, be entailed by a decision to hold this referendum. And no one has done that thinking in detail previously. How would such a referendum compare with the Brexit referendum in Britain, given its existential issue? It's also the the context, of course, of the the troubles and and violence in Northern Ireland over the past century. Um, I mean, would this be kind of more fraught, more complex even than, than Brexit? 
Yes, clearly it is a very difficult issue, and therefore it is necessary to think carefully about how to conduct it. And one of the things that we heard more than pretty much anything else in the course of our consultations over the past 18 months from people on all sides of the debate was, above all, we must not repeat the process of the Brexit referendum. And by that, people meant that we must not hold a referendum without some kind of planning having done been done in advance. And one of the clearest conclusions that we have in our report is that it would be very undesirable to go into a referendum in Northern Ireland, given the history and the background, without a plan either for the form that a united Ireland would take, so that voters can see uh, what that would be when they're voting, or a plan for the process that would follow a vote in favour of unification in order to work out a, a kind of model, if you like, for a united Ireland. Am I right in thinking that you, I mean, academics at the moment are filling a vacuum left by British and Irish governments? They have a lot of other things on their plates, not least the pandemic, and also a sense perhaps that this is just so complex, so fraught, that they just rather, you know, kind of punt it into the, the sidelines and, and just not deal with this and maybe leave planning or even thought about this for future governments. Is that fair? Yes, so clearly the British government doesn't want a referendum on this issue. The British government is in favour of maintaining the union and has a very strong commitment to the union. The Irish government has made it very clear that it doesn't want a referendum in the next few years, that it sees the future of Ireland over the next few years as about building shared understandings about the potential future of the island and sees a referendum as something that might happen further down the line. So both of the governments have other priorities for the short term. And I think, you know, I think it's it's therefore desirable for a group of academics, independent academics such as ourselves, to look at the technicalities of this process, just so that people can see what are the issues that would need to be resolved if a referendum does end up being called. Now, here in Ireland, North and South, Sinn Féin, of course, are clamouring for a referendum. They say, you know, certainly within the next few years, it should take place. Whereas unionists, loyalists, I mean, for them, this is anathema, clearly. I mean, they wish to maintain the union. But I mean, I've spoken to many, I mean, quite thoughtful ones, and they make the case, they say, look, firstly, a border poll is not inevitable. But by having some elaborate process of talking about it and discussing things, that actually makes it more likely to happen. Therefore, you know, there is a, a logical reason to, to not talk about it and to, to basically try to avoid this conversation that, that you're talking about. I mean, do you have any, any sympathy with, with that argument? Yes, we absolutely respect that view. And it's a view that has been expressed to us uh, over the course of our work. And, you know, we have been able to speak with people across the, the spectrum of views in Northern Ireland, including some unionists. But it's certainly fair to say that on the whole, unionists have been more reluctant to engage with our project uh, than have supporters of unification for that reason. Our perspective is that 
you know, we are a group of academics. We're doing a relatively technical job of, of thinking through the mechanics of a referendum. Our activity is not likely to you know, shift the dial in terms of uh, the likelihood of a referendum. But the fact is, discussion of the possibility of a referendum is already happening. It's already taking place. It needs to be well informed about just what the process of a referendum would be. And people need to understand that it would be a complex process and a difficult process. It's not just a simple matter of having a quick vote someday and having an outcome and that being that. There's a great deal more that needs to be thought through. And someone really needs to do that before a referendum is ever called. And briefly, Alan, could you outline the the suggested scenarios or or models of what sort of questions might be put in terms of what vision of a a united ireland that might be offered to voters i mean would be a a federation confederation you know what's on the menu so there are many different forms that a united ireland could take and it hasn't been the task of this working group to to work out those forms in detail but you're right that so in part there's a set of questions around the constitutional form of a united ireland so would it be a federal united ireland in which northern ireland continues to exist and there are also separate governing arrangements for the south of ireland as a whole or potentially the south is divided into a number of units and a federal structure is created or at the other end of the spectrum you could have a unitary ireland in which the northern ireland institutions cease to exist or you could have something in between those where you have something akin to the current arrangement uh, but kind of transferred over into a united ireland And then in addition to those constitutional questions, there are, of course, a whole range of policy questions. And there is then a third kind of set of issues around transitional arrangements and the transfer of sovereignty. So there are many, many questions that would need to be resolved. And perhaps finally, I mean, we see the current tensions in Northern Ireland over the the Northern Ireland Protocol, which basically is technical checks just in in the Irish Sea. I mean, given that there's already tension over that, and we've had a century of, really since the birth of Northern Ireland in the 1920s, sectarian uh, flare-ups and instability really has been the story of of Northern Ireland for for 100 years. Is there any reason to be optimistic that a referendum on its existence could actually take place in a peaceful, rational manner? It's a big and important question and one that requires a very careful thought. We held a public consultation as part of our research for this. And one of the striking things was we we heard responses from nationalists, from unionists, people who don't identify with either of those communities. In all of those communities, we heard hopes about uh, what a decision-making process around this issue might look like and also fears. So, you know, hopes on all sides were that perhaps an inclusive conversation could be had around these issues and people could come to some form of agreement. But probably more widespread were fears that this is a process that could uh, spark violence, ultimately could spark considerable tensions, certainly, and could, you know, revivify some of the the divisions that we have seen over the decades in Northern Ireland. So I think the key thing 
for anyone looking at this process and thinking about how it might be conducted is to recognize that there are those dangers and that uh, so far as possible, it is vital that they be resolved. And I think the best way to do that is for the UK government and the Irish government to take as impartial a perspective on these issues as they possibly can, to recognise that it is for the people in Northern Ireland and the people of Ireland to, as the Belfast Good Friday Agreement says, exercise their right to self-determination on these issues should the time come. Okay, well, Alan, uh, we leave it there. Thank you so much for your, your time and insights today. And to also thanks to your Constitution Unit at University College London and all of the other academics and institutions that fed into this report, which of the say it's 259 pages. It's a model of cool lucidity in an area that is so fraught with heated political rhetoric on all sides. So anybody who's interested in the future of these islands, I would urge them to uh, read the full report if they can make time or certainly the to dip into it um, because it's such a valuable contribution to, to this debate. So thank you for, for all of that. Well, thank you, Rory. It's very good to talk with you. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra when Jonathan Friedland and Andrew Kurtzman dissect the political and personal life of a man who went from hero in the aftermath of 9-11 to, depending on who you ask, zero after he joined the Trump campaign. You guessed it, Mr Rudy Giuliani. But for now, I want to thank our guests Polly Toynbee, Patrick Winter, Sir Ivan Rogers, Jessica Elgott, Dr Alan Rennick and Rory Carroll. The producer is Yolene Goffin and I'm Heather Stewart. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.